morning, everyone. Welcome to all, uh, particularly those of you who are visiting with us today. We're glad that you are here. We're beginning a new series of studies this morning from Isaiah uh, 52, 13 through 53, 12. And I uh, hope that you'll have your Bible open as we talk about this. Um, we'll be discussing this chapter over the next uh, four Sundays, as counting today. And I hope that you can be here for, uh, for all of those. Uh, you were probably about as confused as I was yesterday about all the reports coming out of Russia and what that particularly means for, uh, or potentially means for our uh, friends in Ukraine. And um, from what we were hearing from them, they are about as confused as we are. But uh, we just want to be praying that whatever is going on, that it will ultimately shorten the war and uh, lead to their being able to have peace and, and freedom uh, once again. Reminded from the book of Daniel that it's God who raises up rulers and it's God who brings them down. And so we know that all of this is in his hands. And uh, in that confidence today, we, we trust that uh, his will will be done. A message that comes through over and over in scripture is this. God never leaves his people without hope. No matter what they do, no matter how bad things are, he never leaves them without hope. And nowhere is that made clearer than in the book of Isaiah. Because when you look at Isaiah chapter 1, uh, the prophet likens Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, to uh, a rebellious children, to rebellious children, and to an ox that doesn't know its owner. And he says this in verse 3, Ah, sinful nation! A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. It had gotten so bad. They had so disregarded the covenant with God. They had so violated his law that God said he hated their worship. Can you imagine such a thing as that? Can you imagine us coming together this morning and singing and praying and doing all the things that we're doing and finding out that God hates what we're doing? Well, that was exactly the case with the people of Judah. He said, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. And yet in the midst of all of that, he calls them to repentance. And he says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. And we read that and we think, how is that possible? How can it be that God could go from being so angry with his people that he hated their worship, that he would not receive their sacrifices anymore, that he disregarded their prayers, that he wasn't paying any attention to anything they did other than to judge it, and then to say, Though your sins are scarlet, though they are painted in bright red across the heavens, they're going to be as white as snow. Well, the answer that's given in the book of Isaiah doesn't come until the latter part of the book. And that's where Isaiah speaks of someone he calls the servant of the Lord. Everything is going to hinge on the servant of the Lord. Everything is going to depend upon what the servant of the Lord will do in making things possible 
for God's people to come back to him because that servant is someone who would succeed in every way that Judah and Israel had failed. In every way that they had failed to carry out God's will, he would succeed. He would do the Lord's will regardless of personal cost. There are four texts in the latter part of Isaiah that are called the servant songs. The four servant songs, and here they are. This chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my, uh, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice from the nations. And then the next one is Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 6. He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. And then there's Isaiah 50, verses 1 through 9. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And then the fourth one you just heard read, chapter 52, verse 13 through 53 and verse 12. The one we know so well, he was despised and rejected among men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It is this servant, Isaiah says, who will bring God's people back to him. It is this servant who will bring justice to the nations. It is this servant who will suffer terribly in order to do so. So the natural question that comes up is, who is this servant? Who is Isaiah talking about in 42, 49, 50, and then in 52 and 53? Well, Judaism has wrestled with this for centuries, and they've come up with various conclusions. There is really no consensus, never has been, even going back to early centuries, about who the servant of the Lord is. Some have said, well, the servant of the Lord is Israel herself. The servant of the Lord personifies the people, and so it's speaking collectively of all of Israel as though it were one person and saying it is Israel who will lead the way back. You are my servant Israel, 49 verse 3 says, I will be glorified. And so you can point to that verse and say Israel is the servant. The suffering, according to that interpretation, is the rejection that the Jewish people have tended to experience down through history, particularly focused in the Holocaust. And so it makes perfectly good sense to Jewish expositors to say that's, that's who the servant is. The servant is Israel herself. That's a little hard to accept, though, since Israel has, had not been that faithful servant and their subsequent history was not that. And you wonder, how is Israel going to lead Israel back to Israel? How is Israel going to do that? How is that going to happen? How is that going to work? That just, that's the problem. That's not the solution. So some have said, no, it's, it's not all of Israel. It is a remnant of Israel, not the whole nation, but the, the faithful people in her midst who would do as God desires. But then you run into the same problem. Where, where is that faithful remnant? Where is that faithful remnant leading the way back to God? And so others have said, no, the texts all speak about an individual, a person. And so they said, that must be the Messiah, that must be the one who's going to come and deliver Israel, who suffered and was rejected, and, and that leads to victory and power. But that's the problem. 
How could a suffering, rejected Messiah be of help to the people? And some, therefore, have said, no, the text is not about the Messiah, at least not all of it. The bulk of it's about the Messiah, but the suffering and rejection parts are not. They're about something else. We don't know what. So there's been that constant struggling, that wrestling with these texts, trying to figure out who is the servant of the Lord. Christianity has never been in doubt. Christianity has known from the beginning that this clearly is a portrait of the sufferings of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. You remember that story in Acts chapter 8 when an Ethiopian was on his way from Jerusalem back home to Ethiopia. He'd been that 1,500-mile journey to worship in Jerusalem, and now he was on his way home, and he's seated in his chariot, and he's reading Isaiah. We even know the verses he was reading because Luke tells us in Acts 8. The verses he was reading was Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, the ones about, uh, about him being like a, a lamb that led before the shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Stephen, an evangelist, joins himself to the chariot at the direction of the Holy Spirit. And he asked the man, do you understand what you are reading? And I just love the answer that this man gave. It's so honest. He said, how can I unless somebody guides me? Is, is the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? What, what is this about? And so Philip gets up into the chariot with him. And here's what Acts says in verse 35, Acts 8, 35. Beginning with this scripture, Philip told him, the good news of Jesus. Philip knew exactly who that scripture was about. And he told the Ethiopian who that scripture was about. Matthew 18, verse 17, says that after Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, Matthew writes this, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Peter, 1 Peter 3, verses 21 to 25, in writing to suffering Christians, says, To this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. There was no guile on his lips. When he was threatened, he didn't threaten in return. And he quotes this scripture that he did not threaten, he did not open his mouth. And you hear that clear echo of Isaiah 53. So he opened not his mouth. And then again, in Romans 10, verse 16, Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. He's talking about Israel's relationship to the gospel. He's talking about the relationship of the Jewish people to the gospel. He says, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord... Who has believed what he has heard from us? That's Isaiah 53 and verse 1. He knows exactly that that text is about Jesus. And in Luke 22 and verse 37, Jesus himself said this, I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53 and verse 12. But now somebody might read that and then say, but now wait a minute, that's in the past tense. Isaiah 53 is written in the past tense, so how can that be talking about Jesus? Because Jesus doesn't come along for another 800 years. So how can something be in the past tense be talking about something that's not going to happen for 800 more years? 
Well, this is something you find frequently in the prophets. It's called the prophetic past. The prophetic past tense. Where the prophet is so certain of the fulfillment of what he's saying that he speaks of it as already done. He speaks of it as already accomplished. And that's what Isaiah is doing here, as do many other of the prophets. Besides, who else could it be? You know, when you look at the way that down through history people have wrestled with that text, many of them trying to find somebody else that it can be besides Jesus, anybody besides Jesus. Nobody's ever come up with a, a candidate. He matches perfectly what Isaiah 53 says. And Isaiah 53 matches perfectly what the New Testament says about Jesus suffering for our sins. So that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few Sundays. But this morning, I want to focus particularly on, on the servant's experience of rejection. The rejection of the servant. Next week, we're going to talk about the servant's burden. And then after that, we'll talk about the servant's humiliation. And then we'll talk about the servant's victory. But this morning, we're focusing on this one idea of the servant's rejection. That's what's emphasized in verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 53. Notice uh, verse 1. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? That's a rhetorical question. Who's believed it? And the answer is, not many. Not many. Comparatively speaking, not many. Comparatively speaking, most people did not heed Isaiah's message. Comparatively speaking, most people did not listen to Jesus. Paul himself said in Romans 10 <clears throat> that they have, not <clears throat> they have not all obeyed the gospel. They've not all believed it. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And the answer is, most have not believed it. Remembering that Jesus was rejected by the vast majority <clears throat> in his own time. He says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's been revealed to everybody through the preaching of the gospel, but believed by only a few. And then verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we would look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I heard someone say one time that that verse proves that Jesus was not a handsome man. Uh, that struck me as kind of odd. Uh, to think that. I never really thought about it. You know, we really don't have a description of Jesus physically, do we? But that's how this individual was taking that, uh, that particular verse was, as a, thank you, Tom, that he was saying that, that Jesus was not handsome, that that's what the prophet is getting at. That he was not a handsome man. I don't really think that's what this is about. I think rather than this being about how Jesus looked, I think it's about how people looked at him. It's about how they looked at him with a jaundiced eye that, that predisposed them not to believe. That predisposed them not to believe that he was who he said that he was. They saw nothing special about him. Do you remember in the Gospels when Jesus went to Nazareth, his own hometown, and he read from the book of Isaiah in the synagogue? And he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You remember the reaction of the people? At first, Luke 4 says they all spoke well of him. He spoke gracious words. They thought, this, this is really good. And then they started thinking about it, and they said, wait a minute. Isn't that the carpenter's son? Don't we know him? Didn't he grow up here? Isn't he one of us? 
And then they started getting angry. And, and they decided that rather than honoring him, they needed to take him out and throw him off a cliff. That's how quickly they turned on him. But he came to his own hometown, and the people there <clears throat> didn't want to hear him. And it wasn't about his looks. That's not what it was about. It was about the way that they looked at him, not how he <clears throat> looked. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Notice that word despised. That's a strong word, isn't it? That, that's... That's a really strong word. He was despised. Not just he was ignored or he was disliked, but he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was looked down on. He was disregarded. He was rejected. The stone that has become the, the chief cornerstone a later writer would say, was rejected, but then became the chief cornerstone. Isn't that amazing? The Lord of the universe, rejected by the very people that he created. John commented on this in John chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. He said, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. His own people didn't receive him. <clears throat> Whether we're <clears throat> thinking about his own people being the people of his hometown, or his own people being the people, his people, the Jews, or his own people being his own creation, all of us came into his own world, and his own world did not receive him. It didn't matter how many people he healed. It didn't matter how many people he raised from the dead. It didn't matter how many people he rescued from the clutches of demons. They rejected him anyway. Which makes us wonder, doesn't it? <clears throat> Why was he rejected by so many? The answer is really fairly simple. There was a popular expectation in Jesus' day of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. You see, they were under the domination of Rome. And like any captive people, they wanted freedom. They wanted somebody to come and, and rescue them from this. And so they were looking for the Messiah to be a second David, a, a bloodthirsty warrior king who would come along and lead them in battle against the Romans and, and throw off that yoke of Roman oppression. And finally, finally, after centuries of domination, give them freedom. And here comes Jesus, and what does he say? Love your enemies. Pray for those that despitefully use you. Someone compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And they heard that, and they said, no. That's not what we're looking for. That's not what we're looking for. That's not the kind of Messiah that we're seeking he didn't do any of the things that they expected him to do. And as a result, they decided he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. On the other hand, when he claimed to be 
God's son and to be the Messiah of Israel. They rejected him for that too. They thought he was a blasphemer. John 10, verses 31 to 33, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And they picked up stones to stone him, saying, because you, being a man, make yourself God. You see what was going on there? He wasn't enough for some people, and he was too much for others. Who has believed what he's heard from us? Not many. And it's no different today, is it? Jesus is still being despised and rejected by men. There are some people for whom that's doctrine. They just believe that religiously. If you talk to a Muslim and ask them who Jesus is, they're going to say he is not the Son of God because it's blasphemous to say that God has a Son. So he can't be the son of God. And they deny that he was even crucified and certainly deny that he was raised from the dead. So they reject him totally, although claiming to honor him. I'll never forget hearing an Orthodox rabbi one day when he was asked, what, what in your estimation is the relationship of Jesus to Judaism? And he said, he's irrelevant. I thought, what a horrible thing to say. He's irrelevant. Skeptics say it's impossible that he did the things that the New Testament reports. That that's just mythology. Those are just fairy tales. And that's led to one odd claim. Some have said that Jesus himself never claimed to be the Son of God. He never claimed to be the Messiah. The New Testament writers just misunderstood that and they manufactured all of that in their writings and that the real Jesus was just this kindly, gentle man who wandered around Galilee, telling nice stories, taking little children in his arms. It's kind of a first century Mr. Rogers. And just saying sweet things. You know the problem with that? If that's who he really was, why did the Jewish leadership want to kill him? Why did the Romans hang him on a cross? Who'd want to kill Mr. Rogers? That doesn't even make any sense historically. You see, the problem is not with Jesus. The problem, again, is the way that people are looking at Jesus. He doesn't have the kind of beauty that they're looking for. The truth is, Jesus doesn't appeal to today's self-centered, self-serving, self-maximizing mentality. That's the world in which we live. It's all about me. It's all about what works for me. It's all about what I want. It's all about what I believe. It's all about what I think is true. Don't bother me with any kind of absolute truth or any kind of external truth or any kind of universal truth. It's all about me. It's all coming from me. Some people even say there isn't any God except the God within you. Or are we ever in trouble? That's true. That's what people say. And Jesus was the opposite of that, wasn't he? Jesus came and he put self aside. And he allowed himself to be put to death for the sins of the world. He allowed himself to be rejected by the very people that he himself had created. And also he's rejected today because he, he stands his testimony against so much 
of this world's ungodly behavior. The world's full of ungodly behavior, isn't it? Just ungodliness all around us. I would encourage you to go back and read those first few chapters of the book of Isaiah and try to find one thing that was being done in Isaiah's time that's not being done moment by moment here in our own society today. It's all here. It's all happening. My grandmother used to have a saying. She said, it takes all kinds to make a world. Brother, they're all here. They're all here. Takes all kinds to make up the ungodliness of the world, and it's all here. Read Isaiah and see if he's not talking about today, but he was talking about his own time. But Jesus stands in judgment against that kind of, of godless behavior and that, that ignoring of God and his will and his, and his standards. And he doesn't, he doesn't appeal to people who want to appeal to themselves. It isn't that Jesus doesn't stand the test of history and reality. The problem is that people don't want to be tested. They don't want themselves to be tested. And they'd rather pretend that everything and everybody is okay, and so they don't need him. And that's exactly what the Gospel of John says in John uh, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. The light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Their deeds were evil, so they preferred the darkness. And as a result, they despise him, they reject him, just like Isaiah said we would. Well, somebody hears that and says, but even though I'm not a Christian, I don't despise Jesus. I don't reject him. I'm just ambivalent about him. I just haven't made up my mind about him. I'm, I'm just keeping all my options open. That would be a valid course of action except for one thing. Jesus is not an option. You don't have the luxury of accepting him or rejecting him. Because listen to what he said himself in John 8 and verse 24. Unless you believe that I am he. Notice that. Unless you believe that I am he. There's only, only two options there. Either belief or non-belief. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And Isaiah himself says that our sins make a separation between us and God. And if you die in your sins, not believing in Jesus the Christ, then you remain separated from God for all eternity. You don't have the option to be ambivalent. That's not okay. That's not something that, that you can do. And the problem, the problem is not just what you choose to believe or don't choose to believe. It's the reality that you're a sinner. Jesus said you'll die in your sins. It's not just that you're a sinner. We all are. Welcome to the club. We are all sinners. We are all desperately in need of a Savior. That's what Scripture says. It doesn't just tell us that Jesus is the Savior of some. It says he's the Savior of all. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And we all need to be redeemed by him. And the only real candidate to be that savior is Jesus, the one who bore our sins for us so that we don't have to suffer and die for all eternity for those sins. You see, what uh, when Israel, when Isaiah told Judah about the servant of the Lord, he wasn't saying, here's an option that God's provided that, that, that you might enjoy. Here's an option that God has provided that it's coming down the road, and, and if he appeals to you, he'll make you happier. If he doesn't, okay. Not what he says. No, he said this despised, rejected servant of the Lord is your last and only hope. Telling the people 800 years before he came, when he comes, don't miss him. When he comes, don't turn your back on him. When he comes, don't reject him because he's your last and only hope. Don't let the opportunity pass to have him save you. And that's been the message of the gospel now for more than 2,000 years. That's the message I'm telling you today. The message is that you need to believe in him. You need to trust in him. You need to be convinced of your own sinfulness and that he alone is the one who can save you because he alone died for your sins and rose from the dead. And believing that, you need to turn away from a life of self-service, a life of selfishness, a life of sin, and turn to Christ. You need to openly confess that you believe who he is and be baptized into him in order to have your sins washed away. That's what you need to do. Whatever you do, don't do what Isaiah said most would do. Don't reject him. He hasn't rejected you. Don't reject him. Let's stand together and sing. Here's